Greetings, fellow investigator. You have successfully tuned your device to Renegade Files, your covert source for information on the paranormal, the unsolved, and the conspiratorial. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, sending you this declassified report from the strategically located Jungle Villa Outpost deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files episode 26, Bob Lazar, UFO Mechanic or Disinformation Agent. Everyone familiar with the overall story of UFOs already knows about Bob Lazar. Most treatments of Bob Lazar in the alternative media have either been skewed to cheerlead for him or spun to discredit him. Instead of stubbornly aligning with either side, we will aim the Renegade Files level research laser at this subject in an effort to give you the ability to revisit Lazar's greatest hits, hear some of his lost tunes you may have never heard before, and help you finally tie it all together so you can decide what you think about this UFO icon once and for all. Bob Lazar's story is compelling and fascinating regardless of what camp you fall into before listening to this episode. Together, we will look at Bob Lazar with objective eyes and analyze the clues that both support and discredit his claims. Is Bob Lazar's story the tale of an honest whistleblower or a dark distraction from something deeper? Join me as we go on an adventure to Groom Lake, storm the secret base known as Area 51, and gain access to an even more secret facility within to investigate the good, the bad, and the ugly that is the story of UFO mechanic Bob Lazar. Part 1. The Good This is a huge case. We're talking about someone who has given multiple interviews over multiple years. Through it all, he has stuck to the same general story and what we end up with is a situation where we are left with very little ground to stand upon if we try to discredit what he says. However, we have equally little footing that would unequivocally prove any of his story. I've looked at this in a variety of ways and here is my general plan for this episode. In this first section, The Good, we'll go over Bob's story as it comes to us in interviews and articles and hear the fascinating tale that he himself gives us. In the second part, The Bad, We'll look at the things that Bob has said that may or may not be true. And in the final section, The Ugly, we'll dive into assertions made by Lazar and others in his corner that are most likely completely false. No UFO conversation, from psychotropic late-night campfire speculations to sober workday research collaborations, is ever complete without a lively debate centered around Bob Lazar. 
He is an enigma within a subject that is filled with enigmas. He is an unsolved mystery all his own. And he has been in the forefront of the UFO and alien experiencer limelight since 1989, 33 years at this point, despite his constant and vocal assertion that he loathes publicity. He burst on the UFO truther scene in his famous 1989 TV interview with George Knapp, where Lazar was portrayed as an Area 51 whistleblower. Since then, some of his claims have been proven to be true. At the same time, some of his claims are impossible to verify. He comes across as nonplussed, calm, and even disinterested. Yet somehow, his story of reverse engineering UFOs at Area 51 proves tantalizing enough to keep him showing up over and over again, most recently on the Joe Rogan podcast and on his own documentary produced by Jeremy Corbell. In this first part, The Good, we'll suspend trying to confirm or deny any of the details and we'll just breeze through it in a fun, seamless way as best we can. Some of us have heard this story already, and it may be brand new to others. Whichever level you happen to be on, this section will serve as either a primer or a refresher on the overall subject of who Bob Lazar is and the specific claims he has put forth which make the guy worth listening to in the first place. The story begins with a young Bob Lazar. Many people know about the story of a 23-year-old Bob Lazar putting a rocket engine in his Honda sedan and getting the story into a magazine called Jet Car and an article in the Los Alamos Monitor. The timing of these articles becomes a critical discussion point later and we'll get to those, so stay tuned. But did you know that Bob Lazar also put a rocket engine onto his bike when he was a kid? This information comes directly from the promotional materials sent out by the company that made the jets that Bob used to power his bike. In the brochure, next to a picture of a teenage Lazar on his Schwinn Stingray Deluxe 3-speed jet bike, we read, quote, in 1977, Bob Lazar of Woodland Hills, California was the third man to power his bike with the GB220 jet engine. Max speed reached was 57 miles per hour. However, Bob claims he can reach 65 miles per hour after biffing up the bike's structure. Max jet thrust was 23 pounds, fuel tank capacity 3 gallons. Lazar also subsequently put one of these engines, maybe a bigger one, into his go-kart. Eventually, he would put one of the company's biggest jet engines into his Honda Civic. This resulted in the articles that appeared in Jet Car Magazine and the Los Alamos Monitor in 1982. The articles said Lazar had reached speeds of 200 miles per hour in his jet-powered Honda. Lazar, with his picture on the front page of the local paper, decided to go to a lecture being given by Edward Teller, 
Edward Teller is the theoretical physicist who had been the main scientist who developed the hydrogen bomb through the Manhattan Project. And if anyone was ever a candidate to be put on a government list, it's the guy who put a Wiley Coyote-style jet engine into his Honda Civic, then drove it to hear a lecture given by the guy who invented the atom bomb. Before the lecture started, Lazar was milling around the grounds and he saw and recognized Edward Teller sitting on a low wall reading a newspaper. As the nervous, starstruck young tinkerer approached Teller, he realized that he was reading the front page article about Lazar and his jet car. Lazar introduced himself and pointed out that he was the person in the article and the two had a conversation. Fast forward to several years later, Lazar had bounced around and we know he had a photo development business and he also, in this time, attended Pierce College in Woodland Hills, California, where we know Bob lived. He worked in some capacity at Los Alamos National Laboratory and at some point he sent out applications to work for several military contractors, among them EG&G, who provided system engineers and project personnel to what we would learn was Area 51 at Groom Lake. In the process of applying to these organizations, Lazar also sent a letter to Edward Teller, the famous physicist he had met briefly before his lecture, and in the letter he reminded Teller of their meeting and solicited a recommendation. Well, it turns out that apparently Lazar put Teller as a reference on his EG&G application, which is a pretty glowing reference, and Teller received Bob's letter just before EG&G checked the reference. When they did, Teller, this world-famous physicist, gave Lazar the good word, and that was good enough, and bam, Lazar gets hired to work at Area 51 and S4. Lazar has described the process of being transported to Area 51, a secret flight, then a bus with no windows, and the like, and at least one high-ranking official who worked there has confirmed that Lazar describes this in exactly the way in which it's executed. Lazar says that his first day at Area 51 was mostly paperwork and security clearance upgrading. Lazar had a Q clearance, which is the highest civilian security clearance, from his time working at Los Alamos. The first day, according to him, he basically signed his life away with permissions for tapping his phones and all manner of spying on him and non-disclosure forms and all the contracts one enters into when you go to work for some secret government program. He knew he would be working on some new propulsion system and he was briefed on the summaries of the projects related to what he would be working on. He said everything was compartmentalized so no one person or very few people ever knew everything about every aspect of any one project. But he was briefed on at least a high level of some aspects of other teams doing work relating to his responsibilities. So that was his first day. On his second day, they took him out to a location he calls S4, a few miles south of the Area 51 we know. 
S4, according to Lazar, is even more secret than Area 51, and it consists of a network of interconnected hangars built into the 30-degree slope of a hillside. The large 40-foot hangar doors are treated with a sand and pebble textured surface and painted to resemble the surrounding soil and terrain. And Lazar said from above or even from a few hundred yards away at ground level that you would never see the hangar doors if they were closed. When he arrived, on his second day, mind you, one of the hangars was open and the bus with the blacked out windows dropped off Lazar and the few other people who were going to work at S4 that day. Inside the hangar was what Lazar describes as a classic flying saucer. Pewter gray, made of some seamless dull metal similar to aluminum with no seams or markings. They walked through the hangar following the person showing them to the lab and they passed close enough for Lazar to reach out and touch the craft, which he says he did. He said it was cold like metal and had a matte finish. He said there was a small hatch on one side and next to the hatch was an American flag. Lazar said he thought the craft was some exotic new US military fighter or spy aircraft and he felt a sense of relief because he thought he now finally knew what all of the UFO sightings over the years had been. People had simply been seeing this or some other similar secret air force project. As a point of interest, the United States Air Force has the largest air force in the world. Do you know who has the second largest air force in the world? The United States Navy. Lazar said this particular craft was about 50 feet in diameter. Now, some people have pointed out that Lazar said the hangar bay doors at S4 were 40 feet wide, and if the UFO was 50 feet in diameter, it couldn't fit through the doors. But really, the hangars could have two 40-foot doors, which would make the opening 80 feet wide, and in which case a 50-foot UFO could fit through it easily. And truthfully, there's no need to dig that hard to find inconsistencies with Lazar's story, and we'll get to some of those later. We'll get to a lot of those later. It wasn't long before Lazar learned that the craft he had seen, and others he would soon see, were not of this Earth. Lazar tells us that there were a total of nine extraterrestrial crafts at the S-4 hangars and each one looked a little bit different as far as size and detailed shape, but that they were all disc-shaped and they all had the same propulsion systems. Lazar says he worked only on analyzing and interpreting the propulsion mechanisms of one of these nine UFOs, a smaller, sleeker craft compared to some of the others, and Lazar dubbed this one the Sport Model. The way Lazar describes the propulsion technology is amazing. A device that controls gravitational force and generates a controlled gravitational field in front of the craft and that the craft can then perpetually fall forward into this gravitational dip. 
He describes it by saying, imagine that you have a bowling ball on a bed mattress. Push your fist down to make a depression a foot or so away from the bowling ball and it will roll into that depression and therefore move forward. The devices on the UFO create this depression in the gravitational field ahead of the craft and the craft drops perpetually forward into this depression. His drawings show three gravitational emitters at the bottom of the craft and these can spin 360 degrees while moving back and forth 180 degrees. He says that the rear two emitters can be positioned to allow the craft to hover. The front emitter can then be angled forward to create the gravitational distortion that makes the craft move forward. Lazar calls this the low power mode and it's used for travel within a planet's atmosphere. Lazar also says that all three emitters can be angled forward at the same time and this causes the craft to travel forward at astonishing rates of speed. He says that when the crafts move in this way or in high power mode, what he calls delta mode, they actually travel with the belly of the craft facing the destination. So they tilt to move depending on what power level and speed they're using. Right away, this makes me think of the Gimbal UFO video, and we start to see some interesting connections, which is so often the case here at Renegade Files. The threads here are that Corbell, who produced the Bob Lazar documentary, also released or was involved with obtaining releases for some of the UFO footage referenced by Luis Elizondo, and Elizondo is the person who initially broke the gimbal, tic-tac, and go-fast UFO videos filmed by the Navy. So we see that at this level, many of these players start to overlap. For an in-depth look into those videos and the organizations behind and entangled in their release to the public, be sure to check out Renegade Vials episode number 6, Military UFO Footage and the Pentagon UFO Report. What's interesting about those videos, the gimbal video in particular, is we see a craft shifting its orientation to a new angle before streaking off at an alarming speed. This is exactly what Lazar describes. So according to Lazar, this is essentially how these exotic spacecraft move. They distort gravity ahead of them and use the force of an object falling to propel the craft. It has no rear-facing projectile propulsion. It isn't pushed forward by burning fuel or propellers spinning to push air. It moves forward in the same way a skateboard rolls down a hill. The ship just creates the hill endlessly in front of it. That sounds both logical and advanced. Now, I've said it before, if we ever plan to really go on distant space missions, even just to Mars, which is the next closest planet to our sun out from us, not to mention interstellar travel, then we will have to come up with some exotic technology far beyond the current rocket booster exploding fire out the back propulsion system we've been launching rockets with since the 1950s. A gravity warping device like Lazar describes would solve the problems of carrying fuel to carry the fuel that we've talked about here before. Interesting. 
in his classic second interview with Art Bell on Coast to Coast AM on 6 June 2002, Art Bell asked Lazar if at any time while he worked at S4 did he get any indication about where these crafts had come from. Lazar, in a very matter-of-fact way, tells us in one of the briefings he was told that, quote, information gained from the craft indicated that it had come to Earth from the Zeta Reticuli star system, which is a binary star system you can only see from the southern hemisphere. They didn't say how the information had been obtained. That's pretty heavy stuff, especially for public AM radio. Now, Lazar goes on in that interview and many others to give fascinating details and stories about what these extraterrestrial crafts look like. He has made drawings of them. One of his drawings shows the saucer-shaped craft with the typical dome on top, and it has what looks like an antenna sticking up at the top of it. Lazar has received some recent criticism about that feature because people point out that we have already progressed past having antennas on most of our electronic communications equipment, and why would a super-advanced alien spaceship have an antenna sticking out of the top of it? Two things here. First, strictly speaking, this isn't true. We do have antennas on our wireless communication devices. The antennas are just more integrated into the devices now. Your laptop or tablet has a Wi-Fi antenna. It's just built into the interior of the case that holds the screen. Your smartphone absolutely has an antenna. It's about the length of the phone itself and it runs from the bottom to the top of the phone along one side inside the frame of the phone. And second, Lazar said that feature of the craft wasn't a communications antenna but some part of the gravity control function that served to triangulate the precise central focus of the gravitational field that propelled the craft. He tells us that the crafts were seamless with no bolts or rivets or identifying marks aside from the American flag, which he later learned was just a sticker the guys at the base had slapped on the thing when they got it in there. If they had any firefighters that worked at Area 51, they probably put a Salt Life sticker on the back window of the UFO too. Lazar says that the interior was small with three seats, no screens, no controls, no levers or buttons, nor any adornment or markings. He said the entire machine, inside and out, was monochromatic, dull gray, and looked like it had been molded as a single piece. He said it didn't appear to have any facilities such as a bathroom, food storage, air handling, or cargo areas. He did say that he was only allowed to look into two levels of the craft. The bottom level where the gravity emitters were located. The gravity emitters were three articulating garbage can sized nozzles. And the middle level where the seats and the gravity generators were. These gravity generators were three square trays of sorts, each with a metallic half-sphere placed upside down upon them, like a stainless steel bowl turned over and used to cover a plate on a counter. 
Lazar said that when the gravity generators were fired up, you could put your hand close to these semi-spheres, but you could never touch them. He said the sensation felt exactly like when you try to press two magnets together with their same poles facing each other, that weird repulsion. And the harder you pushed and the closer your hand got to this half sphere, the stronger the force became. Lazar says that the inside of the craft was small and that any passengers would have to be about three or four feet tall. He says he never saw any alien beings, alive or otherwise, but that the common term used to refer to whomever piloted these crafts originally was the kids. Like someone might say, I guess the kids never had to go to the bathroom because there's no bathroom in that thing. Stuff like that. This is a curious feature, by the way, and I guess it's no more curious than the entire situation, but if these things have anti-gravity propulsion and they can warp space-time as Lazar speculates, then maybe they don't need a bathroom or a kitchen because they go to wherever they're going and back so fast. It isn't a long-term trip. You don't have a bathroom and a kitchen and a TV on your bike. Lazar also said that, although he was never able to look into the top level of the craft, this is the area that would be inside the top dome. He speculated that it housed what amounted to the pilot's location and there there could have been some control features in that section of the craft, which he never saw. He also describes the top dome as having what looked like portholes, but he believed they were more akin to sensors to gather information like star positions or horizon angles to be used to help orient the craft for navigation as opposed to traditional windows. Despite all of the controversy Lazar has generated, listening to him talk about the extraterrestrial spacecrafts he supposedly worked on at Area 51, particularly when he's talking to a total pro like Art Bell, is amazing. I'll put a link to the 2002 Coast to Coast AM interview that Lazar did with Art Bell on the Dark Intel Files. You can check it out. It is classic. It's that real deal old school UFO conspiracy juice that we all just love from back in the day. Picture yourself on a road trip at 3 a.m. on some long, straight, dark desert road. Your face glowing phosphorescent green from the dashboard lights. Floating through the night in the spacious comfort of a 1976 Caprice classic. The hollow, monotone AM signal barely coming in now. Crackling static each time the distant lightning conjures mountaintop silhouettes from the black sky ahead. Art Bell talking to Bob Lazar about UFOs at Area 51. Radio gold, baby. Radio gold. Art Bell is a legend. Bob Lazar's initial exposure to the widespread public came in the form of his now-famous 1989 interview on KLAS-TV, a California CBS affiliate, I think Channel 8 at the time. This interview was part of a series on UFOs produced by George Knapp, and George Knapp's name ranks right up there with the likes of Stanton Friedman, Art Bell, and our old friend J. Allen Hynek when we start to talk about guys who were the real deal. 
Finding the original full interview is easier said than done because this is a subject rife with clickbait and keyword stuffing and anyway, here's the best of what I could find. A brief segment of the original broadcast posted here for editorial purposes under fair use. Uh, uh, there's really no way I can prove it without revealing my identity and getting myself into more trouble than I have already. Exactly what's going on up there? Well, there's several, uh, actually nine uh, flying saucers, flying discs, uh, that are out there of extraterrestrial origin. And uh, they're basically being dismantled. Uh, some are, well, in various stages of, of completion, built from other parts, and they're being test flown and uh, uh, basically just analyzed. You say there's nine saucers? How, how are those tests going? Uh, as far as what? As far as whether they're successful and, and, and that sort of thing. Oh, well, some of them uh, are 100% intact and operate perfectly. Uh, the other ones are being taken apart. Uh, I was involved mainly in, in propulsion and the power source. Uh, and, uh, you know, basically, I, as far as I can remember, there are about half of them do operate and the other half are, are just been torn down uh, basically to analyze the components to them. Where, where did we get these saucers? Uh, how did they come into the hands of the government? I haven't the slightest idea and uh, you have to understand the information is very compartmentalized. That interview took place in a news van in front of the home of John Lear of the Learjet family and John Lear is a controversial figure within the UFO community in his own right. Lazar was hiding out at John Lear's house, and we'll get to why shortly. In the interview, Lazar is shot in silhouette, and he goes by the alias Dennis, partly to protect his identity and also because he chose the name as a snarky jab to Dennis, who was actually the head of security for the section of Area 51 where Lazar worked. Another aspect of Lazar's story that seems to lend some credibility to it all is his description of Element 115. Back when Lazar did his first TV interview in 1989, there was no known Element 115 yet. Hassium, which is Element 108, was discovered in 1984. Then Darmstadtium became Element 110 in 1994. Element 109 was initially isolated back in 1982, and the numbers do skip around from time to time. But Element 115 wasn't synthesized until 2003 by Russian scientists, which is why Element 115 is also called Moscovium. And just so you don't think that only Russians name elements after themselves, the way that the Russians discovered Element 115, or Moscovium, was by bombarding Americium with calcium. We also have Francium and Californium. Okay guys, enough. <laughs> Another situation surrounds Lazar taking his friends out to watch the classified test flights of the UFOs over Area 51. Now, this is where we start to get into some of the crazy stuff. So as the story goes, Lazar knew these test flight schedules because he worked on the crafts. He was involved in this sketchy governmental project working for EG&G as a contractor to Area 51 and more specifically, according to him, S4. 
According to Bob, this job was erratic as far as when he had to go in and for how long. And he had been sworn to secrecy so he couldn't tell his wife what he was doing or where he was going or why. So they would call him in the middle of the night like 11 p.m. on a Wednesday and he'd have to get up, grab his things, and drive to the airport to be flown by the secretive Janet Airline to Area 51 to work for a few days. Then he'd return and he couldn't tell anyone what he was up to the whole time. So because of all of this secrecy and sneaking around, his wife started to think he was having an affair. So she started having an affair. But Lazar had no idea. Now, this gets complicated because Lazar has signed off on releases that, as part of his security clearances according to him, allowed or gave permission for the security apparatus surrounding Area 51 and S4 to monitor things like where he went, what he bought, who he talked to, and his telephone conversations, and indeed the phone calls of anyone within his household. Now this gets intricate, so hang on. It seems that Lazar was getting frustrated with his wife pestering him about where he was always going at all hours of the night, so she was suspicious, or sus as the kids say. So he devised a plan to convince her that he was working on something secretive. At the same time, he was starting to lose the few friends he did have because he couldn't talk about work and anytime he told them he was working on some secret government program, he couldn't talk much about that, they thought he was pulling their leg. Finally, he snaps. And in order to prove to his wife and to his buddies that he was really working on secret projects for the military, he looked over the test flight schedules of the alien crafts and according to what I've read, took a few pals and his wife out to the edges of Area 51 one night and they all watched crazy lights fly up and do insane maneuvers. One of the people he took out there was John Lear. And then Lazar said, See, those are UFOs and that's what I'm working on, so there. You believe me now, my old beer buddies Ricky and John? You believe me now, you two-time and skeezer wife? And I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially that's what happened. So... They had such a hoot watching these UFOs zip around that they got more beers and headed out there on two more occasions. On what was the third time, the boys at Area 51 finally caught up to them and they weren't taking the monkey business. They gathered everyone together and gave them a lecture about how they weren't supposed to be there. The wife and the beer buddies were set free after security figured out they were only there because Lazar had brought them out there and Lazar was told to report the next day to Dennis, his superior in charge of security, and Lazar knew he was on thin ice. So the next day, before Lazar could go and actually report to work, Dennis met him at his house, which right away that shook Lazar up. Dennis dressed him down and according to Lazar threatened his life and I think they made their way to the base together presumably to give Lazar more hard times either that day or the next day. While he was being debriefed further at Area 51 base security officers confronted Lazar with transcripts and recordings of phone calls his wife was making to some other guy and because the security officials were concerned about, well, security, they wanted Lazar to help them figure out who this guy was. Maybe a spy, a rogue agent, something like that. 
as it turned out, it was just some dude that his wife was having an affair with, and as you can imagine, that didn't go over too well with Lazar. And a crappy way to find out at that. But the entire thing escalated just because Lazar had decided to take a bunch of civilians out to the closest spot they could get to Area 51 without climbing a barbed wire fence, all to watch scheduled test flights of whatever they were flying at the time, and he used his inside knowledge of the schedules to be there at the right time, in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, and that clearly violated the heavy clearance credentials he had jumped through hoops to get. And the military and their security contractors at Area 51 were none too happy about it. This superior named Dennis is the one whose name Lazar used as his alias when he spilled the beans a few days later, and it was this incident Lazar is referring to in the TV interview when he says he's in enough trouble already. And this was also the reason Lazar was hiding out at John Lear's house. John Lear and Lazar were friends, and Lear convinced Lazar to do the interview with George Knapp. Part 2. The Bad In this part, The Bad, we'll look at the things that Bob has said that may or may not be true, but that seem to stretch our patience with him at best. Now this gets crazy, but I never said it wouldn't, so here we go. Strap on your anti-gravity harness and let's rock and roll. This gets fun. And by fun, I mean digging through governmental documents on security clearances, protocols, documentation, applications, rock and roll. Lazar claims to have had Q-level security clearance when he was hired to work at Area 51. And that they upgraded this security clearance to, according to him, quote, above top secret on his first day at work there. But military security clearance is a vastly more complicated affair than this description suggests. The National Security Clearance Level is a Department of Energy Q clearance for a position that is designated Critical Sensitive FPPS Code 3. All security clearances are subject to drug testing and higher clearances for sensitive jobs are subject to criminal background checks and even a misdemeanor disqualifies you from getting these. And Lazar was supposedly upgrading from his Q clearance to what he calls above top secret. Drug test results and background checks would never be done in a single day while you wait. No way. One source I was able to find is a pilot from the U.S. Navy who shall remain nameless, but he outlines his description of gaining a national security clearance level top secret slash sensitive compartmented information, or a TSSCI for short. He obtained it for a position designated as Special Sensitive FPPS Code 4. There are three levels of security clearance in the United States. Confidential, secret, and top secret. So top secret is the highest national security clearance. (laughs) That's why they call it top. 
There is no above top secret that anyone who is talking has ever heard of besides Lazar and fiction spy novelists. And this naval aviator, a graduate of Top Gun, says it took him three months to get this TSSCI clearance. But according to Lazar, he got a clearance higher than that, which no one has ever heard of, and he got it in a single day. His second day on the job working for a contractor at Area 51. But a naval aviator and Top Gun graduate spent three months sorting out a clearance below Lazar's. We don't need no education. Bob Lazar claims to have two master's degrees, a master's degree in physics from MIT and a master's degree in electronic technology from Caltech. First of all, why would you get two master's degrees and why not a master's and a PhD? Maybe you would, in any case. According to research done by Stanton Friedman, Lazar was at Pierce Junior College at the same time he said he was at MIT. A 2300 mile commute. Maybe he did it in his jet car at 200 miles an hour, so it only took him 10 hours each way. No one can find any record of Lazar being at either MIT or Caltech. Some say that the records were scrubbed by the government, but we can find his records from junior college. Also, we can find his records from high school where we know he graduated in the bottom third of his class, then went on to both MIT and Caltech. Like Stanton Friedman said, if you're in the bottom third of your high school class, you don't get to go to MIT or Caltech. And if you do get into MIT and Caltech, you don't go to Pierce Junior College. And if you got a master's degree each from these two schools, you would have created a long list of evidence to prove it. You would have had long lab sessions and known the lab technicians. You would have participated in team projects with many other students. You would have had an office that would have been assigned to you by a staff member. You would have taught classes as a TA and known professors and other students. And no matter how hard the government tried to erase your existence from these two schools, people would know you there, especially once you became as famous as Bob Lazar. And even if the government did delete Lazar's records from both MIT and Caltech, if he has two master's degrees from two of the most prestigious technical schools in the country, how does he himself have no documentation, no diplomas, no copies of his master thesis, theses? He doesn't have a single transcript or report card. He doesn't have a student ID from either school. He doesn't have a letter of acceptance. He can't offer any proof that he ever even lived in Boston. No bills in his name. No landlord who remembers him no roommates from either university. Neither university has any record of Lazar ever attending, but neither does he. He can only remember the names of two professors from both schools combined, 
and neither of those professors ever taught at either MIT or Caltech. But each of them did teach at schools we know Bob went to, his high school and Pierce Community College. Even if the government locked Lazar up and threw away the key, they still would be unable to erase every stitch of paper and every person you would collect and recall after getting two advanced degrees from two huge schools. We can still find tons of documentation, pictures, other students, and professors to prove Ted Kaczynski the Unabomber went to Harvard even though Harvard itself has revoked all of the rights and privileges associated with his degrees and time there. If Lazar really did get master's degrees from both of those schools, someone would have come forward to make some money off of his name by now. I guess you could say like I'm doing now, but that's not the issue here. Anyone as famous as Lazar with a fully developed college degree controversy already built into his name would almost certainly elicit at least one person he went to school with trying to capitalize on their acquaintance. I can already imagine the book titles. Living with Bob, a Caltech Chronicle. Lazar Lab Partners, the MIT Story. To class in a jet car, Lazar's roommate finally speaks out. These people would have anecdotes galore. Pictures of themselves with Lazar at the coffee shop. Wacky stories of building a beer can pyramid on the dorm rooftop. Finally, Bob Lazar told Linda Moulton Howe that he never attended MIT, but when he said that he went there, he just meant he visited there. Here is Linda Moulton Howe in her own words. It was 1990. I was working at CNN, and I was a producer, and I got a call in Atlanta uh, at CNN at my office from Bob Lazar. And he said, uh, we're going to be doing uh, something on uh, Memorial Day here. If you can get here, uh, we'd like to have you come and be part of the festivities, and uh, we can talk about by then it had been very controversial about whether or not John, or whether uh, Bob Lazar with John Lear, had Bob Lazar been telling the truth about going to Area 51, working for EG&G, all of that. So I went to Las Vegas, uh, met with all of those guys, and was able to uh, spend a lot of time on that uh, Memorial Day weekend, and I believe it was 1990. And here is the moment of talking with Bob Lazar that is indelible in my mind. He was showing me in his kitchen how he ran this film for the real estate offices that he worked for, uh, filming houses. And he was um, in the process of demonstrating how he was doing that, just to show me that this is what he did. And he had told me uh, that when Stanton Friedman had questioned him about the fact that he had no degree from MIT, he said, I never, ever said I had a degree from MIT or uh, anything like that. What happened, Linda, is my, I'm an adopted child. 
and my parents uh, lived in Florida and they didn't make much money and I had gone to school with some buddies we liked electrical things we liked engineering we liked taking cars apart and some of my buddies got uh, accepted to MIT he said I drove up to see them as my friends and I went to uh, one of their classes uh, for a few days he would just go and sit and he said and I learned some things I became even more interested in having some kind of a career in which I would be dealing with electronic and engineering things and he said that's what I learned at MIT I never told anybody I had a degree that's Bob's uh, first-hand version to me as far as the UFO believer community goes, you know you're in trouble when Linda Moulton Howe starts debunking you. And that is well enough about Lazar's education. He went to high school and a community college. He did not graduate from MIT or Caltech. That's just my opinion based on the evidence. And regarding the jet engines Lazar put in his bike, then go-kart, then Honda. All of these engines were invented by Eugene Gluhareff, someone Lazar knew while growing up in the San Fernando Valley. The Gluhareff pressure jet engines burned liquid propane and they were advertised in Popular Science magazine. You can still find the ads if you look deep enough. First of all, we have the brochure for the jet engine kits for sale, and next to a picture of Lazar on his jet bike, we have the ad text, the full version of which we read earlier. Of importance here is the sentence that partly reads, quote, Max speed reached was 57 miles per hour. However, Bob claims he can reach 65 miles per hour after biffing up the bike structure. Max jet thrust was 23 pounds, end quote. So this isn't a huge deal, but it does indicate a trend that goes back to Bob's very earliest appearance in media, and a printed advertisement is media. This is probably the very first published picture of Bob Lazar, and the very first account of something he said being written down for an audience. And what do we get from Lazar from the very beginning? The fact that he reached 57 miles per hour on his jet bike. Okay, fine. But he has to go on to say that he can reach 65 miles per hour after beefing up. The ad says biffing up. I guess it was the 70s. But anyway, it doesn't say he did beef up the bike, only that he can. This indicates that Bob hasn't already beefed up the bike's structure. So how does he know that if he does, he could go faster? Maybe making the bike's frame stronger would add weight and his speed would break even. Maybe it would be slower. We don't know. And the point is, neither does Bob, but he still says it. Then, in the Jet Car article from the Los Alamos Monitor published on 27 June 1982, Lazar says that his jet engine produced 1,600 pounds of thrust and that he deliberately tuned it down to 800 pounds. The largest and rarest engine designed by Gluhareff was the G8-2700, and it produced, as the name suggests, 700 pounds of thrust. And it was very large, 
almost the size of Lazar's entire Honda Civic. Also, according to Gluharev's own documents, the G82700 wasn't built until 1984, two years after Lazar's jet car article was published in the Los Alamos Monitor. The engine shown in that article is very likely a G82130, which puts out about 130 pounds of thrust, which would make the Honda go faster, but produces less than a tenth of the thrust Lazar claimed it could produce. And that's not all. In the previously mentioned interview with Art Bell on Coast to Coast AM in 2002, Art Bell asks Lazar how much thrust his famous jet car from the 1982 article produced. Lazar tells him, quote, about 2,000 pounds. So now the thrust, which was already exaggerated to be 10 times the likely reality, has grown by an additional 20%. So it appears that the thrust of Lazar's jet car grows at exactly 1% per year. The original article also said Lazar had reached 200 miles per hour in his jet car. Lazar told Art it was 212. Another thing Art Bell asks Lazar in that interview was what kind of jet engine was in the car. And here, Lazar goes on a bit of a spiel, telling Art Bell that it was a pressure jet engine with no moving parts, and he talks at length about how it works. But he could just say it was a Gluharev pressure jet engine model G82130. But he doesn't. Because if he says that, then people would know that he just bought the engine and put it in the car which is what he did. And they would be able to look up the specs and they'd know it produced 130 pounds of thrust and not the 2,000 pounds Lazar had just claimed. He answers Art in this way, by describing some technical specs of the engine rather than telling Art what kind of engine it is, which is the question Art asked him, to make it sound like he designed and built the engine. The point is that from the beginning, in the first few published documents featuring Lazar, and right up until today, any time we can verify the mechanical or engineering details of what Lazar is talking about, he exaggerates. By a lot. He claims power of 10 times more than what we know. Then the next time he's asked, he adds even more. Then we have the case of Element 115. Many who defend Lazar point to his knowledge of Element 115 before it was officially discovered. But here's the thing about that. Elements are always given numbers and 115 was actually just one of the next numbers in order. Right now, we have most recently discovered Element 117, Tennessine. <laughs> so I could easily say that UFOs run on a strange new element called Element 125. Then, in a few years when we get to that number, bam, Lex Gordon was right. He predicted element 125. Lazar predicting the discovery of element 115 is like me predicting the arrival of the year 2027. And even if element 115, or Moscovium, was used in the UFOs at S4, then we obviously already had it when Lazar was working on the UFOs, so we had it before he predicted it. 
And regardless of what you think or what I think about the timeline of discovering Element 115 and Lazar's mentioning it years before, this still leads us into one of the circles that Lazar has created. He says that they test flew the crafts and that he watched them do so, so they had to make them operational somehow. Lazar said their efforts to fire the crafts up using known, more stable elements failed. So if they flew them, they must have had stable element 115, if we can believe Lazar's descriptions. In Corbell's documentary, Lazar even does an elaborate illustration of how they manufactured the core component of solid element 115 in this layered cone configuration, and even he says he doesn't understand exactly the function of it all. So they had it there. I guess the point is he described it before it was officially recognized. So Lazar said that the crafts operated on a stabilized form of element 115. Skeptics call stabilized 115 pseudoscience. But according to three of the top heavy element physicists in the world, as interviewed by Corbell, a stabilized version of element 115 cannot be ruled out. I guess under certain conditions or processes. So in a certain sense, Lazar is vindicated by the discovery of Element 115, but on the other hand, what would it take to convince people at this point? Probably nothing short of a stable version of Element 115 shown to generate the gravitational fields of the sport model UFO and a public demonstration of Neil deGrasse Tyson flying the thing around at the Super Bowl halftime show. Further debunking territory surrounds that episode where Lazar took a bunch of people out into the desert to watch the secret test flights. One theory is that while the Area 51 security officers interrogated Lazar the next day, that Lazar knew full well that the military was testing some secret fighter jet technology or spy aircraft or who knows what, and that he got out of part of that trouble by telling the security agents that he had only told his friends they were watching UFOs that he was working on just to show off or exaggerate, as we know he is capable of doing, and that he was so close to being arrested for espionage or domestic terrorism or revealing state secrets in violation of his security clearances and terms of employment that he swore to the security officials that he had not told the people with him what they were actually seeing, so he hadn't revealed any secrets, and that he had just told them it was UFOs, which isn't true, so no harm done. And it's quite possible that this little detail is the only thing that kept Lazar out of jail for that stunt, so he has had to stick with that UFO story ever since to keep himself out of jail. Think about it. If the military had something secret at Area 51, a UFO, a spy plane, a bomber, or otherwise, and Lazar went on television and told the world about it, he would be done. But if they had something secret at Area 51, like a legit new spy plane or an exotic fighter jet or something, and Lazar went on TV and instead said they had UFOs there, if they really don't, then no problem. That is called disinformation. 
and it is possible that Lazar has been press-ganged into deep state service to act as a mouthpiece for exactly such disinformation, and that's why he never really gets into serious trouble. It's just a theory. Part 3. The Ugly In this part, The Ugly, we'll dive into those assertions that seem to most likely be totally false, or that some claim to be false. First, we come to Jeremy Corbell's Bob Lazar, Area 51, and Flying Saucers. Now, the Jeremy Corbell documentary is cool. It's entertaining, and that's the business Corbell is in. And it is informative in that it gives you insight into Bob Lazar on the deepest levels when we get to watch and hear Lazar himself speak. There are some really great Lazar moments in it. In an early segment on the documentary, Lazar and Corbell are talking and Corbell asks him a few questions about how has the whole thing affected you and would you come forward if you could do it all again? And Lazar basically says that for the most part, he has had a negative experience around the entire disclosure and the long-term aftermath of it. Corbell also asks Lazar, what would be your message now to young people about looking at your story and uh, thinking about the world? What would you say to them? And Lazar's answer is poignant. What he says is, just pay attention. I can't say much else. The world's a lot different now. The way information is disseminated and the way things are passed around, it's distorted even faster and more now than it used to be. So they've got a rough road ahead if they're trying to cut through the BS. Corbell then asks Lazar, what do you want them to know? And Lazar says that in the late 1980s, the U.S. government had recovered alien spacecrafts, several of them, and the technology in the Nevada desert that they were keeping quiet and analyzing. That's a fact. They don't need my story, but that's all my story was, that I was just one of the people working on these crafts. To hear and see Lazar answer these questions is compelling. For me, it is. He's believable. Totally believable. In the documentary, Jeremy claims to have found a picture of the famous hand scanner that Bob Lazar said he used while he worked at Area 51. They show the photo as a printout image to Bob Lazar. He freaks out and says... You know, I never thought I would see this again. I can't believe you found it. This is the exact scanner they used. They talk about it a little bit. Joe Rogan also holds up this picture in his famous podcast interview with Corbell and Lazar. So I had heard Lazar talk about the hand scanner a few times. Then I saw the segment on the documentary and I first thought, it seems legit. But as I started to research this hand scanner claim, I found a list of skeptic websites and posts and one video in particular that totally shredded Lazar and Corbell's hand scanner claims by showing that the photo in the documentary is actually a picture of the same or similar hand scanner used in the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I'll put pictures of the Jeremy Corbell documentary image and the Close Encounters image in the Dark Intel files on Patreon, and you can decide for yourself, but trust me when I tell you, they are identical. You can find our Patreon page through a link in the show notes. You can throw in a few bucks and help the show stay ad-free, and you can get some cool extra content for doing so. Thank you, and thanks to the people on the Renegade Files Agency at Patreon already. You make the show work. So here we get into the levels of complexity that surround Lazar's story as a whole. Now, this is something that I, as a paranormal researcher, have come to realize about this case. It has multiple layers. 
The first layer is an incredible story, and it seems true. So you dig into it a little bit, down to the second layer, and you find out that, let's say one part, like the hand scanner, isn't true. So then you dig even deeper, down into the third layer, and you find out, oh my gosh, actually it is true. So with regard to the hand scanner, yes, it was used in the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But in one of the pictures in the documentary, they show the scanner up close, and you can read the model name on the front of the machine. It is the Identimat 2000, which sounds like a made-up name, but it's not. The company makes identification devices, and the machine Corbell shows Lazar and Lazar reacts to is a real hand scanner used by multiple military and governmental security agencies in the 70s and the 80s. When you think about it, it's no surprise that they used one in the Close Encounters movie. They tried to make movies realistic. The movie Top Gun is fiction. They show fighter jets in Top Gun. That doesn't mean fighter jets are fiction. Then the documentary made by Corbell says that Bob Lazar was raided by the FBI after they had a covert conversation they thought was private, and they imply that the iPhone spied on them from a distance and the FBI came and raided Lazar's business because of whatever they said. And here we have another situation where it seems like that first little dig down under the surface reveals that, oh, they were actually looking for some illegal thing that Bob had done selling explosives across state lines, which he did, But then we realize, with a little bit more research, that it wasn't just the FBI that showed up at his business. It was multiple agents with vans and hazmat crews and forensic accountants and computer specialists and on and on. And that it seems like they used this warrant that was searching for a few years old invoice where he had sold some fireworks material to someone across the state line as a way to get into his business, turn it upside down, he said they mapped it out to the square meter so that they could catalog the search of every square meter of his property. And it seems, as George Knapp surmises, that they weren't really looking for some invoice about something that Lazar had sold a few years before, but that they were looking for Element 115. So we have this situation where Bob Lazar's story isn't quite true. And when you dig down a little bit, you find out, oh, it's debunked. But then when you look under that, you you find even more information that leads you right back to, oh, wow, I think what he said was true. Lazar was also arrested in 1990 for operating a prostitution ring, I think with his wife. This is very strange. My summary. Joe Rogan perhaps said it best when he said, while interviewing Bob Lazar, that, and I'll paraphrase here, but what Joe Rogan basically said is that he doesn't like skeptics because it's a sloppy, lazy way to look at things. To just be a skeptic. Because you're always looking for things to be fake. Joe says he thinks that's a dangerous way to think, and I agree. The better way is to be objective. Remove your ego from the situation and look at all the information. That's kind of hard to do sometimes, though. A good example is the hand scanner. A skeptic will look into that until he or she finds that it was a prop used in a science fiction movie, then they stop, because that proves their predetermined point that Lazar is lying. 
but an open mind allowed me to zoom in on one of those photos. When I did, I saw the name on the machine, the Identipad 2000, which sounds ridiculous. But when I dug deeper, I found that this is a real machine made by a real technology company and that these exact machines were in fact in use at the same times Lazar said he was at Area 51 and S4. So the more we research the Bob Lazar story, the more things like this we find. At first glance, he's believable. With an amateur level bit of research, he's quickly debunked. But then, with a more thorough and exhaustive dig, you come back to believing him. It's mental. I've never worked on a case quite like this. When it comes down to it, I think Lazar probably lied about his education. To get a job and to sound cool in a magazine interview in the 70s, then he became way more popular than he thought he ever would back then and it was too late. Maybe Lazar lied about the thrust of his jet car. Maybe Lazar lied about the thrust of his education. Maybe Lazar lied on his resume. But it seems like he did work at Area 51. And maybe he got in over his head. And maybe what he says about the alien spacecrafts is true. When Lazar talks about working at Los Alamos, he never really goes into detail. He never says, when I was working on the particle accelerator at Los Alamos. Instead, he says something like, when I was working at Los Alamos, they had a particle accelerator there. The janitor could say that and be telling the truth. When he talks about working there, he sounds truthful. When someone asks him exactly what he did there, he sounds like he's lying. He never mentions Caltech or MIT unless someone asks him, and then his answers sound like lies. He only remembers two professors. Neither of them ever taught at either school. But both of them taught at schools we know he went to. Pierce Community College and his high school. A high school where he graduated in the bottom third of his class. If you graduate in the bottom third of your class, you don't get into Caltech and MIT. And if you do get into Caltech and MIT, you don't go to Pierce Community College. And if you get a master's degree from MIT, you don't turn around and go get a master's degree from Caltech. That's stupid. And even if the government wiped out all of the records of your being at both schools, you'd still have documents of your own, your research papers, you'd remember a professor who actually taught there, at least one other student would remember you, especially if you're as famous as Bob Lazar. You know how many people my parents' age remember Burt Reynolds from the times they were at FSU when he was there? All of them. But when Bob Lazar isn't backed into a corner about some shaky version of his past, and he's allowed to just speak, he gives us some of the most interesting, compelling, believable stories about exotic alien spaceships, secret military testing grounds, and underground UFO reverse engineering that anyone has ever heard, ever. 
After all of his claims and the many long, dead-end, desert, dirt roads that serious researchers have found themselves stranded on while trying to verify 90% of what Bob Lazar has said, what would it take for the world to finally agree and believe what Lazar has told us about Area 51 and what is housed at S4? At this point, I doubt anything could do that. Even if the Air Force rolled out the sport model tomorrow and took it for a spin, landed it at Kennedy Space Center, and jumped out with a banner that said Bob Lazar was right, there would still be people who wouldn't believe him. But I wouldn't be one of them. I'll tell you right now, I don't believe Bob Lazar was a physicist at Los Alamos. I don't believe he went to Caltech or MIT. I don't believe his jet car produced 2,000 pounds of thrust. I don't believe he predicted Element 115 any more than anyone else who can count. But I have always believed he worked on extraterrestrial alien spacecrafts at Area 51. He may have lied his way from a jet bike to a famous physicist recommendation to a few degrees and into a job at Area 51, but stranger things have happened. If Lazar really was a disinformation agent working for some arm of the government, as many who look into this case have suggested, then he would never claim to have had advanced degrees from two prestigious universities because that claim is so easily debunked and his lying about it immediately discredits him. It seems like someone working for a government agency and trying to weave a false but believable story wouldn't open with a totally disprovable lie. Lies. So I don't think Lazar is a disinformation agent. I believe Bob Lazar worked on extraterrestrial alien spacecrafts at Area 51 because when he talks about that, I believe him even though I believe scarcely a single other word he has ever uttered. And maybe I believe he worked on UFOs at Area 51 because, deep down, I just want to. Thank you sincerely for investigating the deep and twisted case of Bob Lazar with me here on Renegade Files. Subscribe or follow the show now so together we can meet here every 10 days and explore the deepest covert stories where logic clashes with the official narrative. I am so glad to have you in the Renegade Files crew. I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, jet set child.